Broadcasting from the Cross Politics Studios in Moscow, Idaho. This is Campus Church Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode five, Eschatology and Evangelism. Welcome, everybody, to the Campus Church Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism. I'm your host, Keith Darrell, and this is episode five, where we will be discussing eschatology and evangelism. And the reason I am doing this is one of the questions I've come up with kind of over the past year, a little bit more than often, uh, I'm sitting off on the side after I preach on campus, someone will come up and ask if I believe that we are living in the end times. And then uh, about a week ago, a friend of mine, his daughter, uh, he's got a couple daughters and they're in college and they asked their dad about the end times and with Palestine and Israel and everything's going on. So how do we kind of navigate these waters? And so what I want to do here is I'm going to kind of do a crash course on a bunch of things in the Bible, how I read the Bible, how I understand the Bible, and from there, how we should understand uh, some of the end times. And there's a lot of exegetical work I, I still need to kind of do to to shore up a few verses here or there. But what I want to do is kind of give a, a big paradigm of what's going on in the Bible, and especially what's known as the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13, Matthew chapter 24, and Luke 21. I'm going to more focus on Mark thir- uh, 13 and uh, Matthew chapter 24. But the basic idea is this. When when God made the heavens and the earth, the very beginning of creation, uh, Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering in the surface of the deep. Now, in very broad terms, I believe that God made the heavens mature. So even if you think of the Lord's Prayer, uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be the name that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the heavens were made mature, and when Moses, I believe it's in Exodus chapter 24, goes up on uh, the mountain, and he kind of sees a pattern in heaven. He's supposed to make a tabernacle after the pattern in heaven. So the basic idea is this. What's going on the earth, we're supposed to bring to maturity to be like heaven. So uh, the, the earth is formless and void. God makes the heavens. Earth is formless and void. And over six days, God makes the heavens and the earth. Then he plants man— as the head of creation, gives him dominion. It's not good for man to be alone. So he gives him a wife. He says, go be fruitful and multiply and take dominion over the whole earth. And what's going on in that dominion is basically this, that um, if you uh, read uh, early on in my Christian life, I thought the whole earth was the Garden of Eden. But if you read Genesis chapter 2, there's a land called Eden, and in the land of Eden, there is a garden. And so God takes Adam from out here, and he plants them in the Garden of Eden. And what I believe Adam and Eve are supposed to do is, in their being fruitful and multiplying, they're going to subdue the whole earth. What they're going to do is take that Garden of Eden and bring it out into all the earth. Now, I believe what God called Israel to do in putting the tabernacle there, they're supposed to be a priest to the nation and a light to the nations, that what they're going to do there at their crossroads as the world came across them, they're to be a light to the nations, and the whole world was going to be kind of become in a similar fashion what Adam was supposed to do. And one of the places where I get this idea is if you read uh, Genesis 6 through 9 and the flood, uh, on the other side of the flood, Noah is called to be fruitful and multiply. Then in Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham is called, he's going to be a blessing to the nations. And then you just have this fruitful and multiply kind of going on. And so the Adamic blessing— has never been lifted, uh, or the Adamic work has never been lifted. So the very beginning of the Bible, uh, you have an Adam. In Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul contrasts the first Adam and the last Adam. Now, obviously, Jesus is not the last human being to ever exist, but you have the first Adam. And so in between that first Adam and the last Adam, you have a bunch of different Adams. So the first Adam is is the literal historical Adam. Then you have Noah, then you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, David, and on and on until you come to the person of Jesus. And each of those atoms, they had the responsibility of being fruitful, multiplying, and taking dominion over the earth. Jesus is the only 
faithful Adam. So someone's kind of asking you a little bit of the big picture of the Bible. Uh, you have the first Adam, you have the last Adam. The first Adam had an eschatology. He was supposed to bring the creation to glory. The whole earth was going to become like the Garden of Eden, and I believe ultimately would be glorified. The last Adam, Jesus of Nazareth, through evangelism, the Great Commission, we will go into all nations and subdue the earth, subdue the beasts of the field, which are, you know, if you read Romans chapter 13, there's uh, the beast and stuff like that. Daniel chapter, is it nine, where you, uh, the, the beasts come up out of the sea and the Son of Man takes dominion of, over them. So now it refers to nations and stuff like that, and men become beastly in the rebellion of God. But the original Adam had dominion over the beasts of the field and stuff like that. So when you consider the big narrative of the scriptures, I would just say, the, the whole story is an Adam taking dominion of the earth. The first Adam failed. The last Adam is faithful. And where that puts us is this. Uh, we have a hopeful and optimistic eschatology going on, that we are going to go take dominion of the whole earth. All authority on heaven and earth is mine. Go and make disciples of all nations. So when I go out on the campus and preach, people often ask, like, how do you come out here and do it? Because Jesus is Lord. And so if you're going to go into a fight and you know you're going to win— um, you will gladly enter that fight. Now, I may lose short term, say someone killed me, uh, we're still going to bear fruit and win. So even if you were to sit down and you read Colossians chapter 1, um, Paul talks about how the, the gospel is bearing fruit and multiplying in all nations. So even with the evangelism thing, Paul is picking up on that whole theme of Genesis chapter 1 and being fruitful and multiplying. So that that's one of the kind of the, the big picture things I just want to put forth in the idea of evangelism, that uh, the, the very beginning of creation, that you're supposed to take this garden, subdue the whole earth. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. They're going to take that tabernacle, be a light to the world, and subdue the whole earth. Jesus being the faithful Adam, the church being the temple, we're now going to subdue the whole earth. So there's a connection going all the way on. So the question becomes oftentimes with this eschatology, and one of the scary things with eschatology and end times is people get scared of the beast and Mark of the Beast and Satan and the whole earth is going to belong to Satan. I remember years ago watching uh, TBM when I was in seminary, and there's a clip of uh, Mr. T. He did some sort of Christian movie. He go, he said something like, the world don't belong to God no more, belong to the devil. And uh, so many people believe that the uh, world belongs to the devil, but we believe that Jesus triumphed over the devil and the whole earth is his. And so in terms of the millennium, if you uh, sit down and you read Revelation chapter 20, you would see that uh, I would want to argue that we're currently in this millennium, that Satan's been bound. Uh, Matthew chapter 12 speaks of Satan being bound and you binding the straw man. I believe he's been bound, and now we're plundering the nations. We're going to all the world. Uh, Jesus definitively has all authority in heaven and earth, and now we're kind of exercising that dominion into every nook and cranny of the cosmos. And so that's kind of what we're uh, looking to do. But one of the things that comes up oftentimes is uh, the Olivet Discourse, uh, which is found in Matthew chapter 24. Now I'm going to race through a bunch of verses here, um, just kind of give you an idea of what's going on in, uh, up until Matthew chapter 24. So in Matthew uh, chapter 11, verse 16, it says this, Jesus says, "'What shall I compare this generation?' So if you, one of the challenges that we often have is, is when we do read the Bible, we want to immediately apply it to ourselves, whereas oftentimes there are texts that we know that do not apply to us. So when Noah went to go build the ark, no one reads the story of Noah and the ark and thinks, oh, we need to build an ark. They, they, they realize it's a historical thing. That doesn't mean there aren't principles that apply to us, but no one today 
unless you live in Kentucky, is out there trying to build an ark. Uh, and even the ark being built in Kentucky is more of a museum per se than it is someone who thinks they're doing something eschatologically oriented or, or, or something redemptively meaningful in, in some command of God. But in uh, Matthew chapter 11, 16, it says, what shall I compare to this generation? And so ask yourself, what generation is Jesus then talking to? Is he talking about all generations that ever exist, or is he talking to the generation that then existed? I believe he's talking to the generation that then exists. And so also in Matthew chapter 12, uh, they ask him for a sign, and he says, uh, an adulterous and evil generation asked for a sign. And again, he's talking uh, to that generation. In Matthew chapter uh, 17, uh, verse 17, Jesus calls them a faithless and twisted uh, generation. And so if you're just kind of following the flow of Matthew, he uses generation several times. And one of the key passages, um, ever so briefly look at, uh, Matthew chapter 23, uh, it's kind of the famous thing where Jesus is blasting the Pharisees, woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you. So he just blasts them all the way through. And he kind of ends it with this, uh, hear, hear, hear what he's saying to the, the Pharisees that were then existing. He says, Therefore I send to you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from down the to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So if you're a Pharisee, you're sitting there listening to Jesus, and he says, woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you. You're not thinking of somebody 2,000 years in the future. You're hearing Jesus speak of you. He's like, woe unto you, woe unto you. And, he's, and then he goes, all this blood, all of this judgment's going to fall on this generation. Then he goes on to say, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered you as a, uh, your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus says, All this is coming on this generation. Then he looks at the city of Jerusalem and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So imagine me standing there in New York City in the 1980s and I'm looking at the World Trade Center and I say, Look, you guys are greedy, you're selfish, da da da. da. I tell you the truth, these towers are coming down within a generation. Uh, I'm not speaking universally to someone 2,000 years in the future. I'm speaking to those people then existing. Uh, and then in Matthew chapter 24, he goes on to say this, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. What does Jesus talk about in Matthew chapter 24? He's talking about the temple. Um, but he answered them. So they point out all the uh, uh, buildings of the temple. He says, um, you see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they ask him, the, and then they end up asking him the question, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? Um, what will be the sign of the close of the age? And kind of the famous verse in uh, uh, Matthew chapter 24 is verse 34. It says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. There's an um, unbelieving philosopher named Bertrand Russell, and there's also... You know, you debate whether or not the guy's a believer. A guy named Albert Schweitzer, and he talked about Jesus being an apocalyptic preacher, thinking that the end was going to happen within his generation. Um, and so Bertrand Russell says Jesus is a false prophet. He says all this is going to happen at, in that generation, and it's clear that the time-space universe did not end. Since the time-space universe did not end, Jesus is a false prophet. Excuse me, Albert Schweitzer would say something similar. Uh, but what we'd want to say is this, is no, Jesus— really did, all those things were fulfilled in that generation. What did he say was going to happen in that generation? 
He said what was going to happen is that not one stone will be left on another. The whole temple system is going to be coming down. And 40 years later, biblically, a generation, you think of numbers, the generation that wandered around the desert, how long they wandered in the desert? 40 years. And so kind of typologically, how long did Jesus wander around the desert? 40 days and 40 nights. So he was kind of fulfilling Israel and himself. And now he says, I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass. What's the generation? 40 years. So Jesus is staying there in AD 33. So just, again, imagine me in 19, what would it be? If it was 2001, I think, when the towers came down. So I'm standing there in 1961. I think the towers were built after that. But I'm standing in 1961 and say, hey, tell you the truth, these towers are coming down. And uh, this generation will not pass. I'm roughly giving you 40 years of saying it's not coming down. It's coming down within 40 years. Jesus is standing there in AD 33. He says, look at this building. I tell you the truth, not one stone we left upon another. These buildings are coming down, and this generation will not pass. What happens 40 years later? Uh, the Roman Empire comes in, and they destroy and sack Jerusalem, and they burn that place to the ground. So I, I think the conclusion should be, oh, Jesus wasn't talking about the time-space universe. He was talking about the temple of Jerusalem. Now, if when 9-11 happened, we would often say, oh, the world has changed. Uh, everything is different now. And, and so when Jerusalem was destroyed, the world changed. It was a cataclysmic, apocalyptic event. It was a world-changing uh, event, um, but it wasn't the end of the time-space universe. And we're going to uh, discuss that a little bit more. But what, what I want to do here is, like, as you approach Matthew chapter 24, he's not punting 2,000 years in the future. Jesus came to Jerusalem and he was basically laying all this out, and as he goes up to Jerusalem, as they end up killing him, that's the final straw, like, all right, the place needs to come down. Not only the Jews stone all the prophets from, he says, the blood come upon you from the blood of righteous Abel all the way down to Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered. And then remember Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, you murdered the author of life. So what's going on here is, is all this blood, here are the Jews who are God's chosen people, and what do they keep doing? They keep killing the prophets. And now God sends his son. What happens to his son? They kill the son. So it's it's time, their, their jig is up. It's time for their whole system to come down. And that's basically what happens in Matthew's gospel. So when you begin to think about eschatology, um, realize that Adam had a plan from the very beginning to glorify, beautify the whole earth, to be like the Garden of Eden. And so Jesus comes along, and then the Jews were called to do that. And I think much of the eschatology going on in the New Testament is actually when we speak of end times. So eschatology just deals with the study of last things. Um, and when we think about that, we think of the tippy-tippy end of the universe, usually dealing with somehow the resurrection. We think of Antichrist, we think of beasts, and we think of that being like the seven year at the very, very tippy end of the universe. Whereas I, I kind of think if there's eschatology going on in Genesis, um, there's eschatology also going on in the life of Jesus. And so when you think of the last things, I think you kind of need a little bit more of a robust vision. Uh, but what I also want to do uh, quickly in this study is just kind of race through the book of Mark, um, because I think in some ways this becomes more clear. So uh, it begins with John the Baptist coming to preach, and they're quoting Malachi, who's going to come before the great day of the Lord. And so if you're a Jew and John the Baptist shows up and he begins to preach, what are you thinking? Oh, the great day of the Lord is coming. And I I'm going to jump ahead to uh, Matthew chapter, or, uh, Mark chapter 8, uh, verse 31. Uh, this is right after Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, because this kind of kicks off the final conflict. Uh, Peter confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. You're the Son of uh, You're the Son of God, and that kind of kicks off the final conflict. So after that, he says, and after that, uh, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days be raised again. And then he tells them, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, again, you and I should not be ashamed of the Word of God. But those words in this sinful generation, because there's judgment coming on here, are you going to listen to the Word of God, or are you going to be listening to um, 
the, you know, the scribes and Pharisees who are about to kill the Son of God. He says, forever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him will the Son of Man uh, be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So if you're standing there and you're listening to Jesus, do you think the kingdom of God is going to come in a relatively soon event before everybody here dies? Or are you thinking, ah, it's still two, three, four, five, six, seven thousand years in the future? If you're standing there listening to Jesus, he says, you know, in this adulterous generation, you already hear him speaking of judgment, and John the Baptist had already come, and he says, I'll tell you the truth, some here will not taste death. Are you thinking 2,000 years in the future, or are you thinking a present reality? And maybe the easiest way to think of this, think of the prophets in the Old Testament. When you think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, even Daniel, um, and maybe one of the easiest ones to see here is Jonah. When they prophesied, um, we have a tendency when we think of them that they're um, largely predicting some future events. And Jesus did fulfill prophecy, but largely what Jeremiah and these men are doing, they're quote-unquote, covenant enforcers. And being a covenant enforcer, they're saying, Israel, you're being adulterous. Because you're adulterous, you are about to go into exile. And that's even what Daniel, if you go back, you read Daniel, um, he begins to pray because he sees the 70 years coming to fulfillment that Jeremiah prophesied about. And so he began to pray that these things would be fulfilled because Jeremiah had prophesied about these things. And so Jeremiah, again, is not punting thousands of thousands of years into the future. He's talking about the then existing Israel that's about to go into exile, and then their return from exile. So Daniel uh, begins to pray. And if you think of Jonah going to Nineveh, and he says, within 40 days, this whole place is going to be destroyed unless you repent. Again, you and I, we should listen to that and learn things about who Yahweh is, listen about his character. Uh, But Jonah is not prophesying to you and me. And so Jesus also is not prophesying to you and me in these events. And so if you see Jesus as a prophet, and he is a prophet, he's prophet, priest, and king, he's also you know, God in the flesh, but he, he's a prophet. And as a prophet, he is prophesying to his then existing generation, calling to repentance. John the Baptist shows up, calls him to repent. Jesus shows up, calls repent. Instead of repenting, what do they do? They kill him. So what's the fruit of them killing him? He's going to destroy them. What was the fruit of... Um, uh, Aaron and Moses going to Pharaoh and Pharaoh not listening to them, Egypt was destroyed. And so what's happening in the New Testament is actually Israel becomes Egypt. Israel becomes Babylon. These things are going to be destroyed because these people are wicked and rebellious. So that's what we see going on here when he says, truly, some here standing will not taste death until the kingdom of God come in power. Uh, again, in uh, John, uh, John, Mark uh, 9.30, he uh, again speaks of his death, and then he uh, kind of racing forward. Uh, the third time in Mark chapter 10, verse 32, he says, and they were on the road going up, up to Jerusalem. And that becomes a key. Um, I would encourage you to just read through in one sitting the gospel of Mark. And after chapter, uh, after Peter's confession in uh, 8, that Jesus is Christ, you just see we're going to Jerusalem, 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 Jerusalem. And so you should be picking up a man. And like, if I was going to say destruction's coming upon Washington, D.C., and then, and they started going to Washington, D.C., and going to Washington, D.C., they were interacting with the senators and stuff like that. Boom. And Washington, D.C., Washington, D.C. And he starts saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Um, and he says, and they're on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who follow were amazed. And taking the 12, he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him, and three days he will rise. And then at the end of all of this, uh, Jesus begins to heal people, then he has his triumphal answer, and it says this, uh, 11.1, now when they drew near to Jerusalem... 
and then jumping down to 11.11, and he entered Jerusalem and entered into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany. And then he kind of has this weird story that even Bertrand Russell kind of mocks. He, he curses a fig tree, which is actually pronouncing judgment or a curse upon Jerusalem. And then in 11.15, he goes into the temple. This is the kind of—he famously cleanses the temple. And uh, they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought— in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow any to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard of it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So again, Jesus goes to the temple. So if I go into Washington, D.C. and I go into the you know, Capitol building, I say this whole place has become a den of robbers, a den of thieves. I'm making a judgment on that place. Again, I'm not punching about Russia. I'm not talking about the Ukraine. I'm not talking about Israel. I'm not talking, I'm talking about this Capitol building here is a den of thieves. So when Jesus goes in a temple and he speaks about it being a den of thieves, he's talking about the then existing a temple. So we just kind of need that in our head. And, and um, then Jesus' get, authority gets challenged in eleven twenty-seven. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking into the temple, the chiefs, priests, and the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who are you to come in here and clean this temple? And Jesus is like, I'm the son of man. And not only that, I'm going to destroy this whole place. And, and this is one of the keys here. Uh, Mark chapter 12 and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted the vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them a servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Again, remember Matthew chapter 23 is like, uh, you know, Woe unto you, scribes, you Pharisees, you, you stone the prophets from the blood of Abel all the way down to Zechariah, the son of Bechariah. Uh, and he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He still had another, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those sentenced said, uh, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to another. So pick up on that language. He will come and destroy the tenants. What were they going to do to Jesus? And the chief priests and the scribes heard of it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. So in the Old Testament, you have eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, uh, lex talionis. Oh, you're going to destroy Jesus? Actually, what's going to happen, you are going to kill him, but what he's going to do is he's going to, the, the owner of the vineyard will come and destroy the tenants. He's going to destroy the scribes and the Pharisees. He's going to destroy uh, the Jewish system. And, uh, uh, 1210, he says, have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become this cornerstone. Uh, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So again, pick up the cue here in uh, 1212. And they were seeking to arrest him, but fear the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left and went away. Who was that parable about? About the vineyards and coming and killing the son? It's not about you and me. Now, it may apply. We may think through, like, how does this apply to us? But the Pharisees perceived, and the scribes and the Pharisees, they perceived the parable was about them, 
And it was about them. And he's like, yeah, this place is all coming down. It's going to be destroyed. And so that's one of the things I think we need to kind of keep in mind. The whole context is the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish system. It's not primarily between Jesus and some system 2,000 years in the future. Um, so how does this all relate to this? And this keeps building to this. And one other, this is a kind of a little free nugget here. Uh, in uh, 1238, kind of a famous, there's kind of a famous verse here. Uh, Jesus says this, and uh, in his teaching, he said, beware the scribes who like to walk around long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses for a pretense, make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. What do the scribes and Pharisees like to do? They like to pray upon widows. And I think this has an application today. You think of, um, you know, like a TBN type thing, and people just kind of sitting there, watch TBN. Who are they praying on? They're praying on the poor. They're pl- praying on the widowed, and they ask them for money, and they keep telling them to dig deep. But in 1240, he says, who devours widows' houses. Okay? That's a key thing. So what happens next? Kind of a famous thing that I think we misapply. He says this, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watch the people putting money into the offering box. Many people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more uh, than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So what is what really going on in that story is not like, oh, wow, look at her great faith and encouraging some little old lady to give up her last few pennies. This is actually an illustration of them devouring widow's money. They're oppressing the poor and having her give money. So that's really what's going on in this text. It's not uh, an example of look at her great faith. It's here's a poor widow getting devoured is how we should understand that. So again, so what happens after that? Chapter 13, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, Teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So what buildings and stones is he talking about? He's talking about the temple there, the one that where they devour widows' mites. The widow's pimp uh, is going in, and just as they have devoured her house, now their house is about to be devoured. That's what he's telling them. And it says this, And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to go uh, give an exposition of this whole text, uh, but the main thing I want to do here is this, because in Mark 13, 24, this is one of the big verses that people are like, well, this couldn't have happened. But again, here in uh, uh, Mark 13, uh, he does say in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Oh, verse 30, actually. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So they ask him a question. One of these things is going to happen. He says, this generation. Now, again, you get some crazy ideas that this generation means race. This generation means the generation when the temple's happening. I, I think the most straightforward, simple way to take it, Jesus having a conflict with Jerusalem. He comes to the temple. They're devouring widows' mites. And now he's saying, your place is going to be devoured. Remember in chapter 12, they were plotting to destroy him. And so what's going to happen? They get destroyed. So you have this lex talionis going on. It's the end of the Jewish system. And the main thing I want to uh, focus in here is on uh, 1324. He says, but in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. 
heaven, and, when the, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send out angels and gather his elect from the four winds of the earth. So a lot of people would read Mark chapter 13 and say, there's just no way that this has been fulfilled. This could not have been fulfilled. But the reason I believe that we believe that is because even kind of tied into Old Testament eschatology, we are not rooted in the Old Testament enough. When we read the New Testament, we often have a bunch of assumptions. We don't really need the Old Testament. The Old Testament was one story for Israel. We got a new thing going on. But no, the new story continues basically uh, the same ordeal. But when I look at here, I'm not going to, I have a handful of verses written down here, but I'm just going to go through a couple. If you uh, turn into your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 13, and you look at 13 uh, verse 6, and then you uh, go also through 9 through 11, and what he's talking about here is in 13, it says, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amaz uh, saw. So what is this, an oracle concerning Babylon? Is this about America? Is it about Russia? Is it about current situation in Jerusalem? What is it about? It's about Babylon. And what does he say? He says, wail, in verse 6, for the day of the Lord is near. At that time, when Isaiah is prophesying, is the day of the Lord near? We should say, yeah, he says it's near. And does near mean, you know, Isaiah is prophesying, what, 7th century, so 2,700 years later? Is it about us? No. He's talking about Babylon. He says, wail, for the day of the Lord is near, and destruction from the Almighty will come. Jump down to verse 9. He says this, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. What's going to happen to Babylon? For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Is he going to punish them, uh, Babylon, for their iniquity? I will put an end to the pomp of their arrogance and lay low the pompous pride of their ruthlessness. I will make people more rare than fine gold and on mankind the gold of Ophir, I believe is what it is. So, so what is going on here? So, so uh, at the very beginning of creation, this, this is why all this stuff is tied in. Well, if you read Genesis 1, what does the sun and moon do? They govern times and seasons and stuff like that. And then when Joseph prophesies, he sees the sun and moon, which deals with his father and his mother. What are they doing? They're governors. Um, what happens in Egypt when all these plagues fall upon them and does not the sun go out? Even when Jesus is judged, does not the sun go dark? Um, is there not some sort of eclipse? So what you have here, what I have is two things, basically, is when judgment comes upon a place, um, it is a cataclysmic, world-changing, world-collapsing event. So if America falls tomorrow, we can speak of her 50 stars falling. If Japan's, you know, existence ended tomorrow, they're, they're, you know, they got the rising sun, they have a little sun in the middle of their flag, and we say the, the sun's going to go dark. It's the end of Japan. So even in our own understanding of stars and everything else, we understand it's symbolic of rulers and nations and things like that. And if I say your 50 stars are going to fall, your, fall your, your stars are going to fall like the constellations, I'm not literally speaking of the end of the time-space universe, but I am speaking of the end of America. Uh, I may be speaking of the end of Japan or whatever it is. And I think that's much more of what's going on here in Isaiah 13, what's going on with Babylon. And if we go to um, Isaiah 14, um, we have this. And again, uh, what's, the, what's the context? Israel's, the, my little ESV at the top says, Israel's remnant taunts Babylon in 14.3. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and hard serveth which, which he made you to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. So once you beat them, it's kind of like scoreboard, scoreboard. And that's even what you see a lot of pagans doing with Christians today. Oh, well, you're just losing power. And, you know, in the Old Testament, you would taunt Babylon. And uh, in 14.4, it says this, 
He will take up the psalm against Babylon, how the oppressor has ceased and insolent fury uh, ceased. And then 12 through 15 say this, how you are fallen from heaven, O Daystar, son of the dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who lay the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down a shale to the far reaches of the pit. And so what's going on uh, in the far reaches of the pit? So what's going on here? You, you're going to have this taunt. Take a bunch of, you said you're going to do this. You're going to exalt yourself above all the stars of heaven. Now, obviously, the king of Babylon did not literally think he was going to ascend into heaven, uh, or at least in any meaningful way. But it deals with his authority, his dominion, his power. And the taunt is, but you've been made low. Um, you're, you're, you're a morning star. You're fallen from heaven is what's going to happen. Uh, one more in Isaiah in uh, uh, 34, 3 through 5. He says, uh, their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven will rot away. Um, and the skies will roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like the leaves falling from the fig tree. And so again, this is, uh, well, uh, chapter 34 of my ESV says, judgment on the nations. Draw near, O nations, to the people and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all the fill and all that fills it, uh, the world and all that comes from it. So basically what you have going on here, again, is this is pickup theme. You see it with Babylon, You see, uh, and then we're going to see it here with Egypt here in a second. Uh, in Ezekiel uh, 32, um, 5 through 8 says this, Again, a lament over Pharaoh in Egypt, 32, 5 through 6. I will strew your flesh upon the mountains and fill the valleys with your carcass. I will drench the land even to the mountains with your flowing blood, and the ravines will be, filled, uh, will be full of you. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord. So this judgment and this lament over Pharaoh and Egypt is what? It deals with their lights going out. Uh, one final thing in Joel chapter 2, um, 10 through 11 says this. Um, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. So the basic idea is this. Throughout the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is picked up in many different ways, and it, and the day of there's been many days of the Lord. Uh, oftentimes when we think of the day of the Lord, we just think of one final consummating eschatological judgment. I do believe that will happen. I think uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat. I believe 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, the end of the book of Revelation, there will be a final judgment seat. But the day of the Lord, even when Adam and Eve rebel against God and God says, where are you? That's a day of the Lord. Meredith Klein develops this well. Google Meredith, uh, Meredith Klein primal parousia is what he says. And so even that was a day of the Lord. When uh, God redeems the Israelites, uh, Israelites up out of Egypt, that's a day of the Lord. What happens? The land goes dark, Pharaoh dies, all those sorts of things sort of happen and they're brought out. And so I, I sell that from this. When you read Mark 13, 24, it says, But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. What is he referring to there? He's basically saying that you're having this apocalyptic event. All this is going to happen on Jerusalem. And when Jerusalem is destroyed, it's the end of their world. The star, the, the, their lights, the sun, all that stuff goes dark. So what's 
so what does this mean for us? What does it mean for evangelism? Uh, how does all this tie into our life? It's this. When you look at America over the last 20 years, and it may have been going on before this, but at least as I've been cognizant of it, kind of 9-11 was the beginning of the heavens and the earth of America shaking. And we're reeling, we're tottering. I was actually preaching in the Northeast. I was leaving New York City at the time of the attacks, and I could literally turn around and the car was in. I could see the World Trade Center smoking. We didn't have the radio on, so I didn't actually know it was a World Trade Center. I just thought a building was on fire. All these fire trucks were racing south. And we get up to New England and we're preaching in New England for a few days. And so many people had humble, repentant hearts. Like, is this God's judgment on us? Like, to my knowledge, I don't know if they were believers or what, but there was a lot of humility. And what was the response of America? It was not repentance. Uh, we end up even that next week, we end up having you know all of our gods presented at the Capitol building, and we have this uh, at the National uh, Cathedral, and all the gods are represented, and and we didn't repent, we didn't return to Yahweh, and I just kind of feel like things have really gone downhill. Again, maybe they were going downhill before that, but at least in my head over the last twenty years. So what's going on in America is is basically things are being shaken, uh, the world's being shaken. So I don't think. The shaking of the heavens and the earth has ever stopped. And I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. He has all authority on heaven and earth, and he's going to shake every nation until every nation is his. Uh, that's what Haggai prophes- prophesies, is that uh, uh, until that which cannot stand, until that which cannot stand uh, is shaken. And what's the thing that cannot, or what's the thing that cannot be shaken? The kingdom of God. Jesus' kingdom cannot be shaken. Don't build your house upon sand, so when you know, the tides come, it all collapses. But if you build it on Jesus, you'll stand firm. So that's the thing that ultimately will stand. So what's this basically mean for us in evangelism is this. Continue to invite your neighbors over. Continue to share the gospel with them. Continue to love your neighbor. Uh, be zealous in evangelism. Be zealous for good works. Um, it may mean moving out of certain areas, getting out of L.A., getting out of Seattle. I'm not going to tell anybody what to do. Um, maybe they think they're called for missions there, uh, another part of the world. Um, but what you want to do is 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 as you look at what's going on in Israel, as you look what's going on in America, you should think, all right, Jesus Christ is still judging kingdoms. He's still judging the world. I'm not a prophet, so I'm not saying this is that. I can't come along and say, I tell you the truth, America's going to be destroyed in 40 years. I, I, I'm not in that position in any stretch of the imagination to say. But what I am in a position to say is we ought to be faithful, and sometimes that may mean leaving. So part of the call, uh, if we read Mark 13, is that they should flee Jerusalem. When you see it surrounded, Get out of there. Um, and so, again, I'm not going to tell anybody to leave a certain town or anything like that. Um, but but what we need, in turn, is actually, basically, you should be relatively optimistic. Even if your short term is like, America is going to hell in a handbasket, um, you still, what do you want to do? You still want to look to be fruitful and multiply. You're still men. You're still women. Go get married. Go build businesses if you can. And there might be a reason why you go to another part of the country to build a business or another part of the world. Um but in general, you still want to continue to be faithful because I, I believe what's going to happen is America will get shaken. The last thing to stand, 2,000 years from now, America may not exist. The Roman Empire no longer exists. America may not exist, but the church will. The gospel continue, uh, will continue to do uh, its work. And so what we want to do in this time is just continue to be faithful. Uh, continue to love God, love our neighbors, share the gospel. I don't have any insight what's going on in Palestine, Palestine and Israel I don't know who should have what land. All of that's way out of my pay grade. But both of them, we can say both of them need Jesus. And unless Israel's willing to repent and believe in Jesus, like they're continue going to be a, a wicked system. And that's what they are. Palestine, don't know enough of their politics, but they're going to continue to be a wicked system. So what do they primarily need? What does Hamas need? What does Israel need? They need the gospel. And they, they're 
foundations are going to continue to shake as long as they're in rebellion to living God. And that's our message to the world. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And if you want to be in rebellion to him, lay down your weapons. And so as you think of the end times, most of this stuff is dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus' words are prophetic to Jerusalem. Much of Paul's words are applying to the Roman Empire. I think the book of Revelation is dealing with destruction, primarily dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem. I think there is the millennium that is that we're currently in that it, uh, ends with a final consummating resurrection and everything else. Um, but we don't need to be panicked over Antichrist, because even if you read 1 John, the Antichrist is anybody who denies that Jesus came in the flesh. That's what an Antichrist is. It does seem to be suggested there is building towards one Antichrist. Um, but even like the abomination that causes desolation, again, all of that makes sense in a first century context. We don't need to punt it 2,000 years in the future. So you don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be worried. Uh, what we need is con- consistent, faithful Christian boldness in testifying, no, Jesus Christ is Lord. America owes their allegiance to him. Israel owes their allegiance to him. Palestine owes their allegiance to him. And he died, he suffered. Romans chapter 2 says, ask of me, I'll make the nations your inheritance. Jesus can and will get his inheritance. So uh, that's my basic take on eschatology and evangelism. Uh, Most of the eschatology stuff going on in the New Testament deals with destruction of Jerusalem, so we should be zealous for evangelism. Our evangelism will be shaking the nations until nothing, uh, till only that which cannot be shaken will stand. That's the kingdom of God. Then from there, I believe the resurrection of the body will happen. Um, That's what we as Christians are still looking forward to is the hope of the bodily resurrection. Jesus Christ died, was raised bodily. You and I will die. Uh, We will be raised bodily at the end of history with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's this episode of the Campus Preacher Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to reach out to me, Keith, at campuspreacher.com. You can find me on Campus Preacher on Instagram, Campus Evangel. I'm trying to get Campus Preacher on Twitter, but I'm Campus Evangel on Twitter. Keith Darrell on Facebook. So yeah, if you have any questions about anything I said, feel free to reach out to me and I'll try to be helpful. I had hoped that this would be about 20 minutes. We're at 42 minutes. Uh, so uh, Lord bless you. Keep you. Talk to you next week.